Hey, Mark in Steubenville. Jacob, in England, I hear you're about to get locked down and never come back to America. Well, I hope that's not true. We were just locked down last week, and we escaped to Somerset, where they can never find us, except now they can because we've proclaimed it on the internets. Right. Um, Sorry, man. Yeah, that's okay. We'll get over it. But we're coming to see you next week. But that's not why we're talking. We'll, uh, we wrote a piece on the horrible, evil Mr. McCarrick. We did indeed, yeah. And, uh, and I think it's, this is a particularly important um, discussion, not only because it, it harms a lot of people, um, not only because it's a problem that permeates the priesthood today, um, not permeates completely, obviously, but it's, um, but it is seems to be a problem that comes up rather frequently, um, even if it is uncommon um, within the priesthood itself. Sure. And and we discuss that in this piece, and also, uh, but also, uh, and just how rare it is. But also another side of it too is this that the perception uh, that this is a problem that permeates the priesthood. Uh, thoroughly, uh, and, and that you can't find a priest who is not a pedophile or is not an abuser in, in some way. Um, right. And so this is, uh, and it has a lot to do with the reversal of what the Christian priesthood was set out to do, which is right. at least our argument. And perhaps we should back up for those who maybe know about this more generally, but not specifically. Um, mm -hmm. Car Cardinal McCarrick was accused um, really since the early 70s of uh, different acts of sexual abuse, largely um, involving um, seminarians and younger priests and um, also um, different uh, members of families that uh, the Cardinal had ingratiated himself with. Um, the reason that the we wrote what we wrote is because the Vatican, um, in an uncharacteristic way, released a fairly thorough report um, to answer the question of institutionally who knew, um, when they knew, how they knew um, about these actions and why uh, an investigation and um, more severe consequences didn't happen earlier in the process. Um, now, obviously, as you've said, this is um, one case in what seems to be a horrible um, sort of faucet of of cases. Um, but the Vatican does seem to be, at the very least, taking some degree of responsibility in terms of a need to um, investigate and try not to repeat some of the same mistakes. Right, and in part because this is the most well-known and most important prelate that's ever been uh, accused and defrocked for for sins of this character. Many different Catholic commentators have said that this is not a unique problem to the priesthood, to the Catholic priesthood, and, and that is certainly true. Without question it is true, but the case that we tried to make was that this is in some way related to the priesthood specifically. Right. Because if you look at any ancient society, 
they always had a sacrificial system. They had a system that imitated the initial violence that gathered a people together. Or yeah, so and perhaps we Rene should Girard. explain that a little because I don't think that automatically rings true to people. Um, this comes from the the thinker Rene Girard, and what he what he basically argues is an explanatory argument. He's saying, look, you go back to any culture, and you're going to find human sacrifice, and then rituals of animal sacrifice. Right? You're going to find um, these cultures, uh, their archaic religions, as we call them, um, has some moment of sacrifice at its center, and this seems to be important for maintaining the peace and unity of the community that performs these sacrifices. So really what he's trying to do when Gerard looks at the world, he's saying like, look, we have a big blind spot when it comes Mm. to understanding our world because we don't have a unifying theory of why human beings are those type of animals that need to ritually kill something uh, (laughs) as part of their culture. Um, so he's like, this demands an explanation. You can't just be like, yeah, we used to sacrifice things, and now we don't. So he posits something, I think, very realistic. It's a very realistic argument, which is that um, these sacrifices are repetitions of real murder. Um, mm-hmm. So communities um, living after the fall um, are united not by uh, simply like a common good, but actually perversely by a common enemy. So what brings mm-hmm. people together is that distinction of the enemy. Um, and Girard argues that um, this distinction is realized in ritual sacrifice. So you gather together, you remember some original killing of the other, of the outside, of the enemy, and maybe that takes the form of an actual human sacrifice, um, as it doesn't has and still does in many um, communities. Maybe it takes the form of an animal sacrifice. Um, maybe it takes the form of some other sacrificial ritual. But this is at the basis of humanity. And the in a certain respect, the story of the Bible takes this up, right? Um, you have a priests um, in the Bible, right? And the priests are those who offer sacrifice. And it's important to realize that even as Catholics, when we have this, we have this idea of the priesthood and it's very normal, it's very much priests are part of our life, we know them, we know Father Jim. Uh, but the priesthood is not disassociated um, from this sacrifice, from the one who offers sacrifice. This is the meaning that priesthood has had in all cultures and civilizations, and it is very important for Catholics to understand um, and reckon with that fact. What is different about the Catholic priesthood if it is still um, somehow involved with um, sacrifice? Mm -hmm. So that takes us to Christ's own self-sacrifice. So instead of gaining unity at the expense of a victim, of a scapegoat, we ourselves are to unify around Christ's own sacrifice and participate in it. And through our participation in, in pouring ourselves out like a drink offering, as St. Paul says, uh, it is in, in that one body of self-giving that, that we find true unity. So right. there's a proper so... undoing of what is done in every other pagan, uh, pagan sacrificial system, including in a sense right. the, the sacrificial system of the old law. Yeah, so the 
what you have is a long process of <laughs> moving from the sacrifice of others to the sacrifice of oneself. And if you look at Western culture today, we recognize innately powerfully that the only acceptable sacrifice is a self-sacrifice, right? Mm -hmm. No one would be lauded today for sacrificing another person, right? Mm -hmm. And in fact, this is such a powerful difference that this change in priesthood and sacrifice has made on our culture that it is more powerful um, in our culture to be a victim uh, in certain respects. It's mm. more powerful to say, I am experiencing oppression, injustice. I am that other that is cast out. I am a scapegoat. I am a victim because in the Christian West, this evokes um, the pity and love of others. We must help the victim. We must be on the side of victims, right? We see this even in silly ways where people are trying to gather victim status when none really exists, but it points <laughs> to how important of a change this was because this is not something that existed in the ancient world. Right. There in, wasn't so pity for victims. It was not a virtue. It was a, a weakness. Girard actually points this out. He says the first person that really realized uh, explicitly in the modern world that Christianity undid this victimization um, of, of an innocent scapegoat was Nietzsche. Yeah. And Nietzsche, who, who had this understanding that priests corrupted society, that the weaker took advantage of the stronger by introducing pity. And then the society that tried this this out and try to return to the ancient strong gods, the system of, of the, of the, of the ancient civilizations and their sacrifice of others to gain, uh, to gain strength, to gain power and to gain benefit for themselves was the Nazis is what, is what Girard says. Mm -hmm. And the rest of the world found it so disgusting, so abhorrent because Christ had had changed their hearts, had transformed right. the society at large, had really yeah. refounded the culture so right. that afterwards there was this pendulum that swung violently the other direction and mm -hmm. we just began to raise up all victims anywhere they went to the point where we now say that uh, if, you're, if your skin, cone, skin tone is different or your sexuality is unusual, that you are um, the weakest in society and must be raised up. Absolutely, yeah. It's amazing. I mean, this is the problem with liberalism. We talk about this a lot with the work of New Polity. It, liberalism is this almost comical idea that the world changed for no particular reason. It's like a deliberate forgetting of the effect that Christianity has. So, you know, right. people sit there and they have this concern for victims and this and this abhorrence of someone that would say, you know, what we really need is to sacrifice some other to gain real unity. And we, we abhor that, but we believe it to be natural in the sense of without mm -hmm. the effect of um, the Gospels on our culture. It's just something that a reasonable man could sort of think up for himself. But the historical count is obvious. This was a hard-won achievement. This was something that began you know, Gerard puts the first moment, and, and maybe it's important to kind of really quickly walk through this progression so that Absolutely, we don't, we have we don't to, want to run to away with the idea that Christ, you know, comes into this uh, child slaying world and simply says, okay, no more, right? He has to uh, 
uh, draw people out of these habits of sacrifice. And so the you paradigm see, itself has to shift and that takes right. time. Totally. I mean, you see it in your own life, right? Like, like the, the raising a child to think of others before himself takes a long time. And so the idea that it wouldn't take a long time for a people, uh, it, it, you know, that'd be ridiculous. So in the Jewish people, you have a kind of grand experiment as it were, like God takes a people to himself and says, I'm going to teach you to sacrifice yourselves and not others. I mean, this is just one way to describe salvation history. And um, when you see it most clearly is in, I think, two moments that that we uh, mentioned in our article. The first is in the replacement of, so God asks Abraham to sacrifice his son Isaac. Mm -hmm. And it's really important to realize that this wouldn't actually have been some strange, bizarre thing for God to ask. So a lot of the times we have this story of Abraham where it's like it was the ultimate test of faith because how could anyone do this? Okay, but in actuality, I'm not saying it wasn't extremely difficult, but it was a custom. Throughout the entire Bible, God is commanding, do not offer up your firstborn sons. I have never thought of doing this. I've never thought of this thing, so don't do it. It was a part of the nations that surrounded uh, the Jewish people was the custom of sacrificing firstborns. Um, and this is described in different ways, offering them up to Moloch, making them pass through the fire. Um, so when God asks Abraham to sacrifice his firstborn son, the really alarming thing is suddenly like, God, are you like those other gods of the other nations? Do you desire sacrifice? Right. right. And then right at the moment when I think the fear is greatest, that God is in fact one who desires blood, the story turns, uh, and an angel is sent to prevent um, Abraham from sacrificing Isaac. But what doesn't happen is the angel does not then give a discourse on why sacrificing victims is bad. <laughs> what, right. wh what happens is God provides a ram, and the ram is sacrificed. And so in this story, you have a movement from human to animal sacrifice. So it's mm -hmm. remedial. It's like a de-escalation. It's like, okay, step down. God realizes, I think, I think God realizes that we, the, the sacrificial habit is so intense that we're not going to just be able to kick it cold turkey. And he gives um, a turkey, no, a ram, uh, to be the sacrificial victim. And yes, it's true. This has tons of, uh, I mean, th th there's so much theological meaning in this. And, and we should be clear that... Sometimes when people hear Girard and this sort of theory, they think, oh, you're just narrowing down on one aspect. And I think to an extent we are, but it's an extremely important aspect. Like this is a real part of um, salvation history. So there's that moment, right? The movement from uh, human to animal sacrifice. But then there's another de-escalation of the sacrificial order that comes. And it's in the prophets when um, the prophets, and, and, and really in the Psalms as well, but when the prophets and the psalmist, they both start to realize in their different ways that God doesn't desire even animal sacrifice. Um, there's those, those phrases like, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. Mm -hmm. or, or the psalm that says, were I hungry, I would not tell you. Uh, do, you think I, do you think I drink the blood of bulls? Um, it's God is being uh, sort of sarcastic with his people, like, you need to realize that 
I don't desire this sacrificial regime positively. You needed it because I'm weaning you off of human sacrifice. But right. And I this, don't desire it. Yeah. And, and this really comes to right after Saul makes a great mistake of conquering mm. a foreign people and sacrificing their animals, their cattle instead of his own. Because right. at that point, it seems as if Saul does believe that God likes the sacrifice of animals positively in and of itself right. and not as as this understanding that well I own these animals I I feed off of them this is my livelihood this is this is part of the way in which I live I own this I mean we all know this feeling of when you own something and have to have to give it up it's like there's a part of you there's a relationship with that object with that thing that that you actually cherish and that being able to separate yourself from it so that you make room for God and so that you are in a, in a certain set, sense, a sacramental sense almost, habituating yourself towards rendering all of yourself to God most high. Saul forgets that in this moment. He sacrifices something that he has no relationship with, that right. he does not really have a long-standing ownership of to actually have that those cherished habits um, in his soul and in a, in a profound relationship with with the cattle uh, mm-hmm. and certainly not cattle that he lives off of mm-hmm. yeah right and, and, and it's right after this that that the Psalms and the prophets start to have this realization oh God doesn't want this positively in and of itself he wants it for for, the, for our sake for our own sake so that our habits might be turned towards self-giving towards him right right yeah that's awesome and the real it really comes to a head this training in self-sacrifice um it comes to a head before the new testament um when christ comes it's important to recognize that even though we're talking about a certain preparation of people's hearts um Mm -hmm it's not the case that this is simply another quantitative step, right? Because Christ doesn't merely come as a teacher to say, okay, you've had some initial training. Now let's, let's show you why only self-sacrifice is the acceptable form of sacrifice. Christ is establishing a priesthood that is being weaned off of sacrifice in contradistinction to all the priesthoods of the world. This mm-hmm. is a really important point because it's not the case that what a priest is is one who self-sacrifices rather than sacrifices others. It's the case that the priesthood that God establishes subverts uh, the order of priesthood in in all the other nations. It's a unique, it's a holy priesthood um, that is set apart precisely to undo all other priesthoods of the world. And this is the priesthood that um, Christ enters into uh, to transform it once again in his incarnation when he becomes um, our high priest. Um, which means, and we'll get into this, that the Catholic priest is by nature always still subverting um, this tendency to the sacrifice of others. And we'll talk a little bit about how that, how that practically mm-hmm. happens. But Christ puts a kind of finality to this dynamic um, kind of, uh, what's the word? Like withdrawal from, from sacrificial addiction. Uh, he kind of puts a <laughs> cap on it by himself becoming the victim and the priest, right? So Christ dies on the cross for our sake. Christ becomes the victim for our sake. But 
he does it willingly. He says this, that he goes to the cross, right? So when, when this happens, when Christ does this, we now have to acknowledge um, that the only, the only true sacrifice is that kind of sacrifice, the sacrifice of bringing oneself to the cross. The only true um, priesthood is one that participates in that form of sacrifice. Mm-hmm. It's not that sacrifice is eradicated. Um, it's that it is turned on its head. Um, we're still called to sacrifice. It's just that the, the object of our sacrifice in the light of Christ is ourselves. Right. And, and here we, we really want to make sure that it's not misunderstood that we're think, saying that, that the Holy Mass is just a sign or a way of... Uh, uh, of, of subverting through symbol merely mm. the the priesthoods of pagan nations mm. in the rest of the world but rather this is something very actual that when we pray you know that our sacrifice uh, might be acceptable to God most high that we are truly offering Christ to the Father again but in in consuming Christ it is him who is still being offered to the Father, and thus him who is in us, and thus us who is being yeah. offered to the Father. So something very, very real is happening at that moment. And, um, and likewise, the, the unity is real. So remember, mm-hmm. why did people sacrifice innocent victims? Well, it wasn't because they were just bored or didn't particularly like someone. Um, Gerard talks about how <laughs> the world after the fall is a scary, dark place, and we naturally look for um, a way to get rid of that fear and that kind of chaos by focusing in on one particular cause of it, right? Mm-hmm. Um, that unites us. You see this in human relationships all the time. If you're, if you're sort of you're at ill at ease with a friend and you're not really having good conversations, but then you start to talk about someone you both don't like, all of a sudden the conversation picks up and you're kind of enjoying each other's company again. It's real. I mean, I mean, scapegoating is a real on the individual and the social level. It works to create unity. What's important about the mass. One of the many things that is important about the mass (laughs) is that the unity is established, right? But it's not a unity that comes from a common hatred. We call the sacrifice of the mass, Holy communion. Um, so a new form of unity is achieved where we are together, not because a common hatred of the victim, but a common love for the victim who died for our sake. Right. Um, and, and, and that is real. Um, that's a real infusion of grace into our souls where you... to the point that, I mean, if you wanted to be very like on the nose about it, um, after Christ, humanity only really has two choices. They'll either be unified over um, sacrificial victims or mm-hmm. they'll be unified through the Holy Mass. And there's there's no third way except for chaos and violence. Right. And you see this if you've been following along with it, our new polity discussions, this difference between a freedom from a common enemy whom you have to sacrifice, whom you have to kill, versus a freedom for the common mm, good yeah. and ultimately for God himself. Um, and this is this, so it really does everything really does hinge upon this. Um, and when we when we see that uh, Christ has truly 
conquered and converted and called to himself a people for, for centuries and centuries. Despite being separated from him in the Eucharist, there is still the habit that runs over of self-giving, of, of, of our minds being, uh, really having true reason unveiled to us through revelation. As soon as you say, you know, this is kind of one of the strange things, how, how revelation works, is that we would never come to these conclusions ourselves. But mm-hmm. what, as soon as you hear them, you think, oh, yeah, obviously, of course, it has to be that way. And so as soon as you hear that we are not sacrificing a victim so that we might be united together, but rather we have to sacrifice ourselves. And and, and that's the only true form of sacrifice, the only acceptable sacrifice. All others are disgusting and deplorable and depraved. You think, oh, of course that's right. And this is part of the 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 recatechizing of the West to the point now where it is the only acceptable form of sacrifice, as you said, Mark. And so that really gets us to this other issue of what is the post-Christian West that has this memory of of Christian self-sacrifice without Christ animating that memory anymore and that habit anymore. And, uh, and as they, and, and the real answer to that is that they don't realize what they're doing that we do turn back to sacrificing others, victimizing others, hating others, uh, fearing others, uh, instead of uniting our, ourselves around around God. And this gets a little bit to St. Augustine's point that if you if you don't love God, who is real, then you're in, united around something that's not really real, that it's it's empty, it's a void. Mm-hmm. And so and so we and we do do this um, and we and we've start to form false communities. Now, when we, when we come to this understanding that we, we, we think explicitly uh, like a Christian, but act without us realizing it like, like a pagan, we come to the place of liberalism, mm-hmm. um, which, is, which is a pretty good summary of, of how it operates. And so C.S. Lewis has this you know, awesome essay where he talks about, well, actually, it's not even an essay. When he was made a professor at Cambridge of medieval and Renaissance literature, he gave a famous speech. And and in the speech, he talked about the post-Christian West. And he said, you know, now that we are leaving Christianity, we're not going to become pagans all over again. He says, uh, he likens it to uh, a woman that tries to regain her virginity through divorce. He says, it just won't work. Uh, In the same way that when that we will never see a, a prime minister carrying a milk white bull before 10 Downing Street to sacrifice. We're not mm-hmm. going to have ritualized sacrifices again. Mm-hmm. The post-Christian society is one that, that keeps the vices of paganism without ever trying to ritualize them, sanctify them. Mm-hmm. They just permeate our society. Yeah, and and a Gerard, that's an that's an, such an awesome speech. It, Gerard, I don't know if you ever read that in particular, um, but he says that's what the apocalypse is. Um, the the apocalypse is having no ability to pretend that sacrificing victims is good anymore. Like that's gone. You can't do it. Mm. Uh, Christianity has changed that, and it's never going away. But when you fall away from 
positive Christianity, right, where you're actually in Holy Communion, all you get is a kind of increasingly chaotic violence where people attempt to gain unity by finding enemies and then are immediately struck by their own conscience, um, which Christianity has developed, which makes their actions morally dubious. They can't rally around an enemy anymore. They can't rally around a victim. You see it here mm -hmm. and there. They try, and, and you can see this, I think, in our contemporary society. We keep trying to do it. We keep on trying to say, like, okay, we got an America first thing, so we're a nation and we're against terrorism. But then already, within a couple months of, like, the war on terror, it doesn't unify the country. It begins to divide us. Are they really terrorists? Do, have we really cons are we really... Uh, are they really a a purely evil person? Don't we have nuance here? Is this, you know what I mean? Like like war mm -hmm. itself no longer unifies nations because all war becomes morally dubious once you have a Christian conscience. Um, basically asking, is there not some innocence to the victims here? And, and, and that, certainly no unified way of thinking about these things. No, right. the just war theory is out sure. the door if you don't have Christ to unveil what justice truly is. Right, yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. So so you end up in a increasingly chaotic society that kind of schizophrenically attempts for different sacrifices, different enemies. Um, identity politics is a good example of this. Mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. But then finds those things ultimately fail um, to create real unity because that Christian conscience always rears its head and says, um, but what about the innocence of the victim? Um, so that's kind of the state we live in. And, and the reason Gerard says that's apocalyptic is because he says that ultimately um, it leads to a place where no unity can be found, where the um, answer is either the kind of Hobbesian, uh, weird Hobbesian war or conversion of all the nations to Christ, um, which is great because we already know that all the nations will convert to Christ. So winning side, etc. cetera. Uh, <laughs> but let's talk about McCarrick here because if this is the story, if this is the real story, then priests are the realization. So, and this is an important point of Christianity. Christianity doesn't just start, write some scriptures down and then, you know, let's hope that people get it. Christianity is the church embodying Christ in the world and in history. Mm -hmm. Christ walks here. Christ speaks here. Christ mm -hmm. rules here in his church. And so priests of the Holy Church are actualizing this Christian uh, conscience all the time. They are the ones who are the signs of a self-sacrifice that destroys our ability to sacrifice others. Every time they offer up the Mass, they really do change the world in this manner, which is why Nietzsche rightly, I mean, for his own reasons, hated the priests. Uh, the priests, from the perspective of the ancient world, are the poisoners of strength, of everything that says we can kill a victim and, and you know, drink together over the body. Like, you just can't do it anymore. I mean, it's, it, it, and it's no, Nietzsche's right, it's because of the priests. It still is because of priests. But that means that for a priest to become unholy, right? And I mean this kind of etymologically, like to become not set apart in the specific way that Christ has designed um, the priesthood, starting with the Jews and moving into the church. Mm -hmm. uh, you don't just get this neutral thing. Uh, liberals like to talk like this, like, oh, well, you know, you can be a priest 
and be bad and so you'll just have some like bad habits and bad things that you know but it's not the case because if a priest is always a priest which is one of the teachings of the church that um you know a priest is a priest forever forever in that order of melchizedek of old that's right exactly um then to sin as a priest is also to sin as the one who offers up sacrifice it is to undo the undoing. It's to subvert the subverting. It's to return to older forms of victimization. This is crucially important because I think sometimes Catholics are just flabbergasted that priestly sin takes on a priestly aspect. Mm-hmm. Like we, we want to know that, you know, Father Jim has like a little bit of a drinking problem uh, or something, something that we can just account for because he's Irish or something. Uh, but then we, we run into this problem again and again that why is it that abuse keeps coming up? Why do we keep hearing like weird and off-putting stories about like priests desecrating our altars? Like we just heard from, uh, I think the diocese of New Orleans. Mm-hmm. Um, what, like what's with that? And I think unless you have this understanding of priesthood, you're not going to understand that once you say no to that self-sacrifice, all that's left is other sacrifice. And priests um, structurally um, can't victimize others with that not being an attempt at a return to ritual forms of victimization. And so mm-hmm. it's, it's why it explains a lot, I think, about why um, the sex abuse scandals and crises within the Catholic Church have taken the form that they have right with um you know these abusers using um the holy spaces of the church using even sometimes like the sacramentals of the church as part of their abuse um having a kind of ritualistic grooming pattern with their victims um a lot of the and i'm not going so far as to say that they're self-conscious necessarily about what they're doing maybe some are i don't know um but they're victimization always takes the form of an apostasy away from that undoing of victimization. And I think if you don't recognize that, you're never going to quite get to the core of um, why this is such a scandal, you know, why it really strikes to the heart uh, of the church. That's, that's basically the argument, I think. That is basically the argument. You had some great additions to it about the ills of bureaucracy, the church focusing, trying to become more like an institution of this world in the way that it selected leaders. Um, and, and that comes out, and, and in some ways, the, the church, the magisterium, the, 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 the contemporary magisterium, is in a sense repenting of this by publishing this document, um, at least for repenting of, of what they did in this case, choosing somebody who demonstrated great ambition at a young age and brushing it under the rug as if it didn't matter. Uh, somebody who proved to be a phenomenal fundraiser, uh, able to, he was a savant of fundraising. I wish I had that gift. Um, uh, and, but instead of choosing somebody that adored Jesus Christ and loved neighbor as, as self, um, that they, they began to, to look more like a bureaucracy of this world, as he said. Um, and that's, and that's brilliant. And it goes, it goes hand in hand again with, this movement away from uh, becoming the least amongst us. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and, I, and I think that the mistake people make is in imagining that um, 
and this is something that wasn't mentioned in the article, and perhaps it's worth it. Um, we, we have this discussion of, of priesthood and why there is something unique about the Catholic priesthood, but it's also the case that every person, to some extent, is a priest. Now, what I mean by that is it's a sort of deep anthropology. When, when Adam is made, he is created as a priest, a prophet, and a king. Mm-hmm. Right? And so the idea that this goes away is not, it's not the case. It does become perverse, right? In fact, I mean, we won't have time to go into this, but the, the very fact of institutionalizing the priesthood, so only certain people are priests, is itself one of those remedial works um, of God. It's not simply that God sat there and said, like, there should be certain people called priests. No, like, everyone is a priest. Moses speaks mm-hmm. about this in, in relation to prophets. Would that everyone would prophesy. Um, but because mankind is addicted to these old sacrificial forms, God has to call certain people to the priesthood. Um, mm-hmm. And what this means is that there really isn't a sexual abuse, whether from a um, officially Catholic priest or someone else that isn't a uh, corruption of priesthood, right? Because priesthood, because from the very beginning, right, man is called to offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. He ha- We all have this priestly role, no matter how far apart from the church we've managed to make ourselves. And so I I think that what's important about the Catholic Church being thrust into the limelight right now is that it's also, and and maybe people won't realize this, it's also a condemnation of all of our institutions, that they are so far um, from Mm. embodying this priestly function that's a part of humanity itself. You know, there's almost no more believable conspiracy theory these days than that the elite seem to be involved in sex abuse and pedophilia, right? Like this is like, that was sort of a big part of 2020. And what was remarkable Mm -hmm. to me is that even the people that were like, yeah, this is kind of a nutty conspiracy theory are kind of like, yeah, but I could see it, right? (laughs) And I think we have this sense that at the heart of the way we are living in this post-Christian world is a active disdain for others and active um, gaining of power through the victimization of others. And we see this economically, um, we see this socially, and then right. it's just a very small leap of logic to say, hey, that's probably happening sexually, that's probably happening um, to it's pro- the, the wealthy and the powerful are probably involved in that in um, this other way of dominating the weak. Um, right. So I, I would hope that the uh, scandal of the church is a moment of reflection for all of our institutions, which are not really brought under the limelight, but which we know have um, sexual abuse often hidden at their, at their core. Um, this might be too much to hope from the world right now, but <laughs> that is the, um, the silver lining, as it were, that in cases like this, there is an opportunity for contrition for repentance not simply from the institutional church but from the priesthood of every the priesthood of all believers but then also um, the post-christian world at large that that it can look to its um that we can all look to the corruption that exists um within every major institution in the world right now becoming the model 
and the, and the habituated people to lead us out of it again. Yeah. Mark perfectly said, couldn't have ended any better. It was just beautiful, man. I like giving you compliments. It's easy to give you compliments. <laughs> well, I appreciate it. Let's let's uh, let's end in a quick prayer, just for um, please. Let's uh, pray for the church. Uh, let's pray for Cardinal McCarrick um, that that he convert um, and be forgiven, and let's pray for all um, victims of sexual abuse that they might find comfort and healing in the Holy Mass, and that. You know, people like us who think about it and write about it would be um, put into encounters to actually um, be of help to mm-hmm. anyone that's been hurt by this. Um, and we just pray in the name of our Mother, Hail Mary, full of grace. The Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners now and at the hour of our death. Amen. All right, Jacob. See you next time, all right? Bye. (laughs) Thanks, Mark.